Well, we're in the midst of a series called Standing in the Gap, and we're looking at the prophet Elijah. And what we're going to do... Hi, Wendy. Back from Kenya. And Tim as well. You guys got to meet Tim and Wendy. In fact, you know, you're going to hate me. Please forgive me. Just stand up for a second. Just for a second. All right, sit back down. I know you hated that. Um, you guys are applauding. You don't even know what they've done. They just got out of prison, okay, in Kenya. Yeah. No, I'm just kidding. They uh, have been over to Kenya serving the Lord on uh, missions. They have a really fascinating story. Get to know them. Pretty interesting who the Lord's uh, bringing to this church. We're in the midst of a series, and every once in a while we're going to do a Standing in the Gap series, and we're going to look at a character of the Bible, a man or a woman, or even maybe a young person. We're going to see and extract from their life what can encourage us in our faith. And we're in the midst of one with Elijah. And I want to begin this morning while you're, I hope you're opening your Bibles. You really must have your Bibles open. You've got to be following along in the text so you know what I'm saying is right. Don't ever trust a pastor. We're all, well, let me rephrase that. That was horrible. <laughs> Don't ever trust a pastor without going back to the text and hearing what he is saying and make sure it is correct. So 1 Kings 18, if you didn't bring your Bible, there's one right in front of you. But William Booth, who founded the Salvation Army, I want you to hear one thing that he said to his army. I want you to get the visual because it's highly evocative imagery. Faith and works, faith and works should travel side by side, step answering to step, like the legs of men walking. First faith then works, then faith again, then works again, just like a toddler beginning to take steps until they can scarcely distinguish which is the one and which is the other. Moms and dads, you remember when your little ones began to walk and how they struggled step to step and they had to think and they had to concentrate, they had to focus every time they put one of their feet forward. But now, now that they're older, it's autonomous. They don't even think about it. And that's the way that faith and works work together. They cooperate together. As you grow in Christ, your faith must demonstrate itself in works or it's dead. Well, Tim, I don't like that. Well, that's James, the Word of God. If your faith is alive, it will demonstrate itself in works. Stop leaning on a profession of faith that somebody made when they were six years old. I don't even really bring that into my mind with my own children. It matters nothing. Is their faith alive today? Is my faith alive? Is your faith alive? You see, the aim of this series, as we're going through Elijah's life, The aim of this series is that we, you and I, we would gain the confidence to lay ourselves on God's altar. Now, that's so easy to preach, and it's so easy to hear. It is not easy to do. That we would lay ourselves on the altar like a servant does and say, God, you've got my life. What do you want to do with me? And God's going to say to you, I see you, and I'm going to put you into a gap of the crumbling walls around you. It might be in your family, might be in your workplace, 
might be in your schools, it might be in your neighborhoods. I'm going to put you into the gap and you're going to defend my glory. And when we step on that altar, we're going to find God training us and preparing us for things in our lives that we have never anticipated. He's going to use us in greater ways than we could have ever imagined. You know, God still has his Elijahs. And they're being raised up to do incredible things for his glory. And people all around us are saying to God, here I am, send me. This world has no more pull on me. I don't want to live for this life. I want to live for eternity. I can handle what comes my way because I'm looking at eternity. And God says, I can use you. You know, the most powerful weapon on earth is the word of God. You believe that? You probably won't be comfortable in this church unless you believe that. Because that's thoroughly immersed in the minds of our leadership. The most powerful weapon on the earth is the word of God. But there's a second one that is incredibly potent. Here it is. It's the soul that God has set on fire for him. Is that you? I mean, we might as well be honest. You do come to church, I hope, to be challenged, to be encouraged, to have your life maybe a little bit more laid bare, and to let the honesty and the searing scalpel of the Word of God dig in there and expose the truth. Don't you want to come to church? Don't you want God to speak to you? And God always speaks in a double-edged sword. You know that, right? Because one side of that sword cuts and the other side heals. That's what he does. He speaks in a double-edged sword. And when we confess sin, all we're doing, that Greek word confess means we're agreeing with God. God, I see it now. You've opened up my life. You've shown me the truth. I see it and I agree with you. And God is saying, well, make sure you're agreeing with both sides. Number one, you're a sinner. And number two, I've saved you. My grace undergirds you. And I've got a life for you. Don't get stuck on one side of that sword. It's a life of misery. It's too many Christians shackled by shame. Work through the confession of sin to the glory of God. That's an Elijah, and we're about to see this very thing in our passage before us. Look at your text. We get to verse 1 of chapter 18, 1 Kings. After many days, the word of the Lord came to Elijah. Don't forget that. Don't gloss over after many days. And what we're seeing here is the calling of Elijah into action. It wasn't until after many days that God's word finally came to Elijah. Now, get behind the scenes. It's been over three years of training. Those of you who have been to college, to graduate school, and you've been in years and years of college education, you know that you could be chomping at the bit to get going in your career. You've been on hold for a long time. Well, it seemed, it must have seemed to Elijah, he was stuck on the bench. After many days, friends, we don't like to wait. Come on, is there anybody really in here that likes to wait? 
We don't like to wait in lines. We don't like to wait in traffic. We don't like to wait for five-day shipping. We really don't like to wait in hospital waiting rooms. The only ones, I think, the only ones in this world who like to wait are those who are hoping to get a tip. That's about it. And as difficult as waiting is, it's part of the training that God puts all of his servants through. You don't believe me? Well, let's go back for just a minute. You remember Abraham? God says to Abraham, I'm going to bring you a child. It was 25 years later when Isaac was born. He had a wait, he and his wife. Remember Moses? Moses was in the back desert shepherding for 40 years before God finally had him ready and Israel ready for him to shepherd his people. You remember Joseph who was in prison waiting on God? God, when are these dreams going to find fulfillment? It was in prison that he learned humility and faithfulness. Finally, God moved and brought him position and power. The disciples followed Jesus for months maybe even over a year before they were finally sent out on their own to preach. Paul had to wait in jail. We've got to wait for the return of Christ. Waiting is a crucial part of God's training. You step on the altar, you're going to be taught to wait because it's going to teach you patience and obedience. But it's not only important in Elijah's training. You're about to see this. It was also important in the nation of Israel. But listen, the next time, friends, that God makes you wait, remember, it might not be only about you. God was working on the rebellious heart of his people. Look at the text. The famine was severe in Samaria. Samaria was the capital of Israel. Remember, I told you the first sermon in this series, you've got the northern kingdom that's called Israel, and you've got the southern kingdom that's called Judah. Ten tribes go to Israel. Two tribes go to Judah. Jerusalem, the temple, is in Judah. You've got Israel. Up north, and the famine was severe in its capital city, Samaria. You know what that's telling us? It's telling us that because it was the center of pagan worship, it was the courtroom, the throne room, the, the home of Ahab and Jezebel. Because it was the center of pagan worship, it was the epicenter of the judgment of God. The drought had turned the ground to iron. I always say that wrong. Somebody came up yesterday and said, you say two words wrong and you never correct it. Iron, whatever. <laughs> and fragrance. That's just the way I say it. All right? Rebellious congregation. Mike, Mike listen, this is the subject of uh, the Ackley lunchtime. They always tease me for this. I can't seem to correct it. The drought had turned the ground to a hard metal. <laughs> Unable, <laughs> to way around it. Unable to be even plowed. It couldn't even be plowed. Listen, those old ancient implements couldn't break that ground, and it couldn't even grow food. My dad was a contractor. We built churches. He built churches and homes, and I would be drafted into service, not very willingly. And up in New York, central New York, the last thing you wanted to ever do in your life was to have to dig the ground in the middle of winter. It was so bad up in New York that when my dad died in November, he didn't get buried till May. You can't open up the ground. 
And dad says, listen, we need to dig about a 12-foot trench to lay some wiring. I was out there all day. I got about an inch deep with a pickaxe. It was the most miserable job I'd ever done for my dad. The ground can harden to the point you can't even break it open. The famine was severe in Samaria. It was so bad. Look at your text. Look at verses 5 and 6. We find King Ahab, the top commander, out looking for food. Now look what it says. For his horses and mules. You want to know how wicked and ungodly Ahab was? He should have been out shepherding his people, looking for food for the starving. He was out looking for food for his horses. How ironic, because Deuteronomy 17, up behind me on the screen, God commanded Israel's kings, don't acquire many horses. Because if you do, you're going to shift your trust in from me into them. Yet Ahab, listen, had over 1,000 horses, and he was trying to keep them alive. And the word of God comes to Ahab, or to Elijah, rather, in verse 1, the waiting's over. He says, go show yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain upon the earth. Did you see something in there? It's so subtle, but it's something you must know if you're going to step on the altar. God always attaches his promises to his commands. Well, look back in verse 1 of chapter 17, or verse 3, rather. He says to Elijah, here's the command. Depart from here and turn eastward. Hide yourself. Here's the promise. I've commanded the ravens to feed you. Verse 9, arise, go to Zarephath. That's the command. I've commanded a widow there to feed you. That's the promise. Here's verse 1. Go show yourself to Ahab. That was the command. Here's the promise. I will send rain upon the earth. Let's go back again. God commanded Abraham. Leave your homeland. He was 75 years old. Leave your homeland. Go to a land that I'm going to show you. And a great nation's going to come from you. I know you don't have children. I know you're 75 years old. You do what I'm telling you to do. I've got a promise in store. God commanded Moses, confront Pharaoh. Moses says, I can't. I can't speak in public. I'm not eloquent. God says, I promise I'm going to give you the words. God commanded Israel, march around Jericho, that fortified city, almost one of the last cities to have to fall while they undertook and took over the promised land. Go march around Jericho. I'm going to give it into your hands. That's the command and that's the promise. Jesus says to us, go into all the world, preach the gospel, make disciples. Here's his promise. I'm going to be with you. Elijah, go show yourself to Ahab and I will send the rain. Do you live that truth? I mean, I understand how subtle this is, but most of us, I'm pretty sure we don't think this way. Listen, if God is telling you to do something, he will always attach his promise to it. He will never ask you anything he always commands. And when he commands you, he will promise to help you do what he's told you to do. You don't need to worry. That's the luxury of a servant of God. 
And Elijah's going to need to know that. He's going to need to trust God because guess what? He's public enemy number one. Ahab was searching everywhere for Elijah. He would go to neighboring kingdoms, neighboring nations, and he would put them under an oath. Don't harbor the terrorist Elijah. And if you do, then we're going to come against you militarily. You see, Ahab hated Elijah. Fearsome hate. And God is telling Elijah, go back to that ungodly king and defend my glory. And I'm going to bring blessings to Israel. You know, the text doesn't say it, but I think you can extract this from what you learn about Elijah through his life. I think he was pretty happy that he's getting off the bench and into the battle. It's just the way he was. Now, that was actually an introduction, because I know, be afraid, because really it was, we've been studying Elijah. I want to get us to the second servant of God. He doesn't get a lot of press. And we're about, I think, to be very, very encouraged to step out in faith and trust our God. We've seen the calling of Elijah now we're looking at the calling of Obadiah. And we're first introduced to him in verse 3. Look what it says. And Ahab called Obadiah, who was over the household. And look at what the word of God says. In parentheses, this is so important. Now Obadiah feared the Lord greatly. Did you hear that? That's code for he was a follower of Yahweh. Intense. And when Jezebel cut off the prophets of the Lord, Obadiah took a hundred prophets and hid them by fifties in a cave and fed them with bread and water. Obadiah feared God greatly. And his name means servant of Yahweh. If you want to know what Obadiah means, I'm asking a lot of you all the time. When I meet you, I ask you, what's your name mean? We, names are important, and Obadiah's means servant of Yahweh. Now, if you listen to a lot of sermons on Obadiah or read a lot of commentaries, over half of them probably are going to say he was a pagan, worthless person. Well, that's not what the Word of God says. A little bit like Lot, who was a righteous man, the Bible says, yet preferred living in a city of homosexuals and molested and raped his own daughters. Yet still, he was a righteous man. How do you hold that intention? Well, we're going to try to do that this morning. You see, I told you about the northern kingdom, and I told you about the southern kingdom, and I told you that Jerusalem is in the southern kingdom. Well, most of the priests... Most of the Levites, because wicked king after wicked king and king was more evil than the one before them in Israel, most of the priests, most of the Levites went down to the southern kingdom. But there were some prophets left, and the prophets were the ones that read and exposited or instructed or taught the word of God to the people. And there were still prophets in the northern kingdom, and they were being slaughtered by Queen Jezebel. Cut off means killed. Now, you got to understand this. Ahab and Jezebel, they, didn't, weren't, they weren't interested in bringing 
Baal worship alongside Jehovah worship. They wanted to eradicate the worship of Jehovah and replace it with the worship of Baal. So in order to do that, she's killing, she is killing, she's the real power behind the throne, she's killing the prophets of God. And Obadiah has a pretty influential position. Look what the text said. Over Ahab's household, likely third in command of Israel. If you want to know what that's like, it's kind of like a prime minister. He had stewardship responsibilities over the land and over the possessions of Israel. So you've got Jezebel killing God's prophets, and you've got Obadiah, get this word, secretly hiding those prophets that were still alive. You know they've discovered over 2,000 caves in that region. He needed two of them. He hit 100 of them. And groups of 50. God had given him this position for the very purpose of protecting his prophets. And and Obadiah used what influence he had to labor for God, but it was at great, great personal risk. You know what risk it was? If Ahab or Jezebel had discovered what he was doing, he wouldn't be the only one killed. Listen, you stand for God at your workplace and maybe you forfeit promotions. Maybe you get laid off. Maybe you get fired. Well, it was way worse than that. If he was discovered, not only would he be killed, his whole entire family would be put to death. How's that for a weighty responsibility? See, Obadiah was courageous. Now, here's the key. When his faith was secret. But when he was prompted, which he is about to be, to come out into the light of clear confession, his faith showed itself for what it was, filled with holes and pockets of fear. And I'm kind of thinking that's a lot of us. Well, we'll see if it is or not. We might be tempted to think that Obadiah really didn't do anything wrong. We might be thinking that we we need to excuse Obadiah. He was in a very difficult situation. I mean, if he lived openly, how would he ever have been able to hide the prophets? Of course, he had to live in the shadows of his faith. He wouldn't have been able to be used by God. Well, maybe. But let's let Scripture interpret Scripture, which is the one of the major rules of hermeneutics or how to study the, the Word of God. Let's take two other men of God who were almost in identical positions. You've got Joseph, number two to Pharaoh, and you've got Daniel, number two, in Babylon. Both of them served under pagan, wicked kings. Both were given their positions by God. And take a look at Daniel. Daniel served God at great risk, such a great risk that because his faith in God was discovered, he was thrown into a pit filled with hungry lions. Yet neither of them, now get this, neither of them hid their faith. Both of them lived openly. 
You see, Obadiah was like so many Christians today who have been given a place to serve God. Maybe it's in their career, maybe their neighborhood, maybe their school, maybe even in their own families. They've been given a position. They've been given a place to serve God. They've stepped on the altar or so they wanted to. But when the fire turned up, they stepped out and they went right back into the shadows. These are the Christians that quietly pray in their cubicle for the group that meets during their lunch break to study the Bible. They don't want to really be directly associated with them. These are the Christians who, instead of sharing their faith courageously on that business trip, they claim fatigue and a headache rather than going to the bars. That's why I'm going to the hotel room, not because this is not the life that I will live. Don't we watch those pairs of Jehovah's Witnesses go through our neighborhoods knocking door to door? Don't we feel a little more guilty that we're not open in our faith? Here's the way to test this. Do your coworkers, and listen, you answer this because I don't know. I don't know what's in your heart. Do your coworkers, do your classmates, do your neighbors, and do your family members know that you are a fully committed brother or sister of Jesus Christ. In my conversations and in my own life, the answer is likely maybe not. And the words of Jesus are often used as an excuse to say, stay silent rather than a guide for wise, humble declaration of the gospel. I'm sending you, he says, out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. You see, we're not supposed to live our faith on our sleeve. We're supposed to live in the shadows. Well, that's not what Jesus meant. He said, don't be obnoxious. Don't be pugnacious with the gospel. Don't pound the Bible on people's heads. Be my odor. The, the actual word is fragrance, and that's another one I can't pronounce. It's really not odor. Be the sweet-smelling incense of Christ. Live in a way that people are drawn to and attracted to. Ladies, you know, you don't wear it for any other reason. When you put that perfume on, it's to attract people to you, not illicitly, not immorally. It's to smell good and people will notice. That's why you wear it. Well, in the Old Testament and the New Testament, that was the deodorant. That's not why you wear it. Cologne, the same thing. Jesus says, I am sending you out in the midst of wolves. I want you to get out and declare the gospel. Demonstrate it. Speak it. Live it. Don't stay in the shadows. Well, Obadiah stayed in the shadows. And when we hear sermons like this, I mean, listen, I was, in a, I was the lead pastor until five years ago. I sat in the pew just like you did, just like you do. And when I would hear sermons like this, I'd get a little squirmy. And I would usually, and you might too, give the same reactions that we're about to see from Obadiah. Let's look at what the text says. Verse 7. And as Obadiah was on the way, behold, Elijah met him. Now that's key. That's coming in in a little while. And Obadiah recognized him and fell on his face and said, Is it you, my lord, Elijah? 
And he answered him, it is I. Go tell your Lord, behold, Elijah is here. And he said, how have I sinned? How have I sinned that you would give your servant into the hand of Ahab to kill me? Did you notice that interplay? Every word in the scriptures is important. Obadiah calls Elijah, my Lord. It's a title of respect. It's this, my master. Look at what Elijah says back. As he begins to expose Obadiah's fear. As he begins to draw Obadiah out of the shadows, he says, go tell your Lord, behold, Elijah is here. He's saying, Obadiah, you might be calling me your master, but you've got another one. His name is Ahab. And all of a sudden, the crashing words of Christ start to penetrate. No one can serve two masters, for he, either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You can't serve two masters. You know, it's a little puzzling. Elijah's interchange with Obadiah. You know, uh, Charles Spurgeon said this, I suspect that Elijah didn't think very much of Obadiah. He does not treat him with any great consideration. He addresses him more sharply than anyone or than one would expect from a fellow believer. You see, I think maybe Obadiah is like that little boy who wanted to be recognized for his accomplishments. So he came to his father and he says, Dad, let's play darts. I'll throw and you say wonderful. Elijah's not going to flatter him. Elijah's not going to say, Obadiah, I'm so proud of you. You've been so faithful. He's coming to him to draw him out of the shadows, out of secret faith, and get on the altar and stay there and live out God's word. He says to, to Obadiah, go tell your master where I am and bring him to me. Do you remember the response? When God's word, verse 1, came to Elijah and says, go show yourself to, to Ahab, it was courageous, it was immediate, it was obedient. Now look at the response when Elijah says virtually the same thing to Obadiah. His response was filled with hesitation and four excuses. Let me give these excuses to you. You be honest enough, like I have to be, and see if they're present in our own lives. Number one, it's this. Verse 9, and he said, how have I sinned that you would give your servant into the hand of Ahab to kill me? He's saying, Elijah, it will cost too much. It will cost me too much. Three times in this passage, he says, Ahab is going to kill me. That is the clear proof of fear. If I tell Ahab that I found you and you're not with me, if I didn't bring you with me, especially if we come back and you're not here, he's going to kill me. He might even think I've been hiding you the whole time. And he says to him, what have I done to deserve this death sentence? You see, Obadiah was courageous in the shadows, but he wasn't in the open. And then he gives another excuse. It's too dangerous, not just for me, Elijah, but listen, it's too dangerous for you. Verse 10, as the Lord your God lives, that's an oath. There is no nation or kingdom where my Lord is not sent to seek you. And when they would say he is not here, he would take an oath of the kingdom or nation that they had not found you. He's saying to Elijah, Obadiah is, Elijah, listen, let's not do this. It's too dangerous. You're going to be killed. 
And then he says, but I've already done enough. Don't you know what I've done? In verse 12, he starts to tell Elijah exactly what he's done for God. I, your servant, have feared the Lord from my youth. Has it not been told, my Lord, what I did when Jezebel killed the prophets of the Lord? How I hid a hundred men of the Lord's prophets by fifties in a cave and fed them with bread and water? Elijah, if you really understood all that I've been doing these last three and a half years, you wouldn't ask me to do this. Where have you been, Elijah? We haven't heard from you. We haven't seen you. I've been working. I've been risking my life. Now, we've seen three excuses, but we're about to see the one that's the center of them all. And it's the one that dominates most Christians. He finally admits, I don't really fully trust God. Verse 12, and as soon as I have gone from you, look at this is vertical. This is against God. The spirit of the Lord will carry you. I know not where. See, he didn't understand that God's commands always come with his promises. He'd been around Baal religion so long that he actually began to put, put over God the doctrine of Baal. You see, Baal was known for being a secretive, deceitful, and tricky God. And you might tell me that you're going to be here, Elijah, and you might really mean it, but all of a sudden God, who is tricky... It's going to take you away, and I'm going to come back with Ahab, and he's going to see no one, and he's going to kill me. I don't trust God. You want to know why people get off the altar? I will tell you every single time at the very root of it, it's because you doubt God's goodness. There is no better explanation. And every time you begin to doubt, I can promise you, like me, we are beginning to forget who God is, and put our eyes on the circumstances. I mean, after all, Elijah disappeared once, three and a half years before, and while he was gone, God's prophets were being systematically killed. I don't trust God. Where was he when we've been going through all this suffering? Yeah, I don't know about you, but there really is part of me that I can really sympathize with Obadiah. I mean, don't you struggle, friends, at times with really being sure that you could depend on God? I mean, Obadiah hasn't been through the training that Elijah has. He didn't see ravens come through the horizon and land with bread and meat in their beaks and their talons. He didn't go to Zarephath and watch a jar of oil and a jar of flower magically supernaturally replenish itself he wasn't the one that stretched his body over a dead little boy and prayed for his resurrection and saw life come back into him he's not been through the training that elijah's been through and he was serving god he was doing important work he was a follower he feared god greatly but at the core of it all he was struggling in his faith in the goodness of God, and it was a death sentence for faith. Haven't you ever been worn down by that slow, grinding pressure of trials? Obadiah, friends, was a man whose actions were commendable, but whose faith was weak. And a weak 
Faith cannot sustain bold, courageous action. Now, you might be thinking to yourself, Tim, I don't know if I agree. I don't really know if I agree that Obadiah had a weak faith, that Obadiah preferred the shadows. Remember verse 1? Elijah goes, show yourself to Ahab. Remember verses 5? Ahab and Obadiah separated. Each went, the text says, very importantly, by himself to go look for food. Where did God lead Elijah first? It wasn't Ahab. It was Obadiah who was given the job to go get Ahab. It was Obadiah who was living in the shadows. It was Obadiah whose faith was weak. It was Obadiah who needed to be encouraged. He needed to be strengthened. Get out of the secret. Get out of the shadows. Come out in the light. And as proof of putting your faith to demonstration, go get your master and bring him back. We're about to see how Elijah encourages him. And friends, it's how you encourage your friends, your Obadiahs. And how your your Elijahs encourage you. Remember, Obadiah would have been the one. He was over the household of Ahab. He would have been the one that ushered Elijah into Ahab's presence three and a half years earlier. You remember what what Elijah said then? As the Lord, the God of Israel lives, 17.1, before whom I stand, that servant terminology, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. And how similar it is now to what he says to Obadiah in verse 15 of chapter 18. And Elijah said, as the Lord of hosts lives, that's an oath, before whom I stand, I'm his servant. I will surely show myself to him today. Obadiah, Elijah is saying, God lives, not Baal. And I'm going to tell you something, and he's never used this name for God before this point. God is the mighty Lord of hosts. Why does he bring that name to Obadiah's weak, struggling faith? Because that's the name for the mighty, powerful God who has a multitude of angels at his command. Obadiah, Elijah is saying, God can and God will protect you. Get out of the shadows. Live your faith courageously. And trust your God. And it's before that God that we both stand, that we both serve. So get back on that altar and serve him. Get yourself, get your eyes off yourself, Obadiah. Put him back on the glory and the majesty and the might of God. Friends, I'm telling you, when we doubt, our eyes have left our God. We're like Peter who took his eyes off of Jesus onto those windy wind-tossed waves and began to sink. This is courage. Elijah's showing us confidence, commitment, and friends, it is contagious. And it is exactly what Obadiah needed to shore up his faith, to put feet to his faith and serve. And look at verse 16. So Obadiah went. He got out of the shadows. He went to Ahab and told him. And Ahab went to meet Elijah. He did what God was telling him to do. 
And there, I think, are a few takeaways for us from this. So let me give you three. There's a lot more in there. Do we really believe, friends? Do you really believe? By the way, you'll know if you really believe this because your life will support it. Do you really believe that everything you have has been given to you from God to be used for his purposes? Do you truly believe that your career position, teacher, nurse, CEO, manager, police officer, whatever, that it has been given to you by God for one main reason, to defend his glory. Bring the gospel to bear. Are you holding anything back in reserve? Your possessions, your health, your time, your money? Are you holding anything back in reserve, refusing to give it to God? There's a second one, though. Are we living courageously? Are you really living out of the shadows? Or are you making excuses for why it's right that you stay secret in your faith? Well, if I was bold in my faith, I'll be fired. Be a wise as a serpent and innocent as a dove. And live in the light. Let the beauty of Christ, as you demonstrate it, draw people to you for explanation. And be ready to give an answer when they ask. And finally, and honestly, the most important one to me as your pastor, are you encouraging others to trust fully in the Lord of hosts? Can God send you to Obadiah's? He won't send you to an Obadiah unless you're going to point his eyes or her eyes back to God. Is he sending you to Obadiah's in order to shore up his or her faith? And when he sends you, your Elijah's, are your eyes readjusting on the might and the person and the power of our God? I don't think there's anybody in here, I am certainly no exception, that wants to get off the altar when it gets hot. And when we start to get off, do not be surprised when all of a sudden an Elijah comes into your life to get your eyes back on God. It's what we are to do, Paul says it, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. Are you an Obadiah? You fear the Lord. You're a believer. You're a Christian. You're a brother. You're a sister of Christ. You're a son and a daughter of God. But has fear moved you into the shadows to where you no longer live openly for the gospel? Friends, God will not allow it. And he will bring you your Elijah. And when he does, Listen, readjust your eyes, and get out and serve with all that you have. It will pay dividends for eternity, and you will defend God's glory. Lord, thank you for Elijah. Thank you even for Obadiah. Lord, it's tough for us to relate with Elijah. Lord, even though James says he's a man with a nature like ours, even though he's like us, it's just hard. The guy was so courageous. His faith was so powerful, but Lord, I think we can relate to Obadiah. 
Lord, would you help us? Would you shore up our faith? You are the author and the perfecter, yet you perfect our faith so often through those Elijahs that come into our lives. Lord, if we have faith like Elijah, send us to the Obadiahs. Lord, if we're Obadiahs, then send us the Elijahs. Help us to stay on the altar and serve you with everything we have. It's yours anyways. And let us defend your glory, proclaim our hope in Jesus Christ, and live in such a way as it commands the attention of people. Help us to love one another and encourage. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.